Hello and welcome to M&A Murders and Accusations, the good, the bad, and the ugly of selling your business. We dig into what you need to know and how not to kill the sell of your business. Now here's our host, Rick J. Krebs, Mergers and Acquisitions Advisor. Hello, everyone. Welcome to my podcast, M&A Murders and Accusations. Brought to you by Rick J. Krebs from the mountains of Utah, Heber City. And uh, welcome to the show today. I got a great show for you. I'm excited to share this information so you don't kill your deal. All right. Today, we're going to talk about the key elements of a letter of intent. First of all, people get letters of intent or, or they get indications of interest. There's slight differences between the two. One is a little stronger. Um, however... Each of them have both binding and non-binding terms. And so when you get a letter of intent before signing it, spend a little money, have your attorney look over it, make sure by signing it, you're not, you know, incriminating yourself or getting into any problems. But I would have an attorney look at it. If you feel comfortable without an attorney, you can certainly do that. But I would recommend having an attorney look at it. I'm not an attorney. I look at them all the time. But I always recommend my clients take a look in and have someone else have a second set of eyes on it. This is the single largest financial transaction in your life. You've got to get it right. It never hurts to pay a few bucks, crack open that wallet, pay a few dollars and have someone else look at it. Not to kill the deal. And we're going to talk about that in another podcast, but just to look at it and see what you're getting into and what you need to know if you sign that. So I'm going to refer to my notes here a little bit, but the the name of this show is what every seller needs to know about letters of intent some or IOIs, which is indication of interest. There are some similarities and there's some differences. We're not going to go through it today, but uh, these are the things that should be in it. So let's back up and talk about each of these. So when you have a business for sale, if you're less than a million and a half, typically they'll go ahead with a purchase contract and that is signed at the front and it is actually finalized at the end. But anything that's over a million and a half generally has a letter of intent or IOI. And basically that's a letter of intent to purchase. It's like dating. I tell this to all of my sellers. I said, this whole process is like dating. You go on a first date, which is your first phone call. That's when you meet. That's when it's all fun and games. You get to know each other. You know, if you like each other, you like what you see, and then you go on a second date. You don't typically ask, you know, in-depth questions on that first date. You know, if you're dating someone, you don't ask them the color of their underwear on the first date. You don't go there, right? Maybe after you get to know them a little bit more or something, you might do that. But, you know, depending on who you are, you don't go in for the kiss on the first date or the first meeting. It's just inappropriate. Same way with businesses. There's certain things that you ask, certain things that are appropriate at their time. So when you sign a letter of intent, this is like putting the ring on the finger. This is when you are, are engaged, you are committed to each other. However, each of you can back out at any time, right? If you don't like what you see, you can certainly back out. You know, that's the time you could ask them what color their underwear are, for instance. It, <laughs> you know, it's time to get personal. It's time to really dig deep and uh, look at who you're going to marry. And, and the marriage is when you sign the contract with them. And uh, look at the transaction like a marriage, not like a divorce. Sometimes people think it's like a divorce. You're just going to throw the keys on the cabinet and walk out after the sale. And that's not the case. You're going to have to work with these buyers. Typically, there's a seller carrier earn out for two to five years. So you're going to want to have a good relationship working together. And, and remember, 
if it's your fiance, you don't beat them up too bad or they're not going to want to marry you. So be courteous, be kind, but uh, you've got to get to the bottom of the issue. So anyway, now this is when you're dated and you've gone on a few dates, you know, you like each other and you're ready to take the next step. You're ready to put the ring on the finger to show a commitment. That's the letter of intent. So the key elements of every letter of intent, one, you should have working capital target or you should agree on the calculations of working capital. Get your CPA. Typically, a working capital target is the average working capital over the last 12 months. You're going to want to make the calculation of what that is, and you're going to want to know what to expect. So as you negotiate, you can go in there, and and the sellers typically want to do a low working capital target number. Why? Because if it ends up being higher at closing, the dollar for dollar, it increases the purchase price. It's that simple. But if you don't know what it is, You don't know what to negotiate and you end up cutting yourself short. Working capital can kill your deal. You don't have that in your letter of intent because it'll be a surprise at the end. And I've seen it where it just becomes a grinding part with buyer and seller if it's not handled properly. So if you are a cash basis taxpayer or cash basis person with your financials, you're going to need to make some calculations to calculate working capital properly. You're going to need to calculate accounts receivable. You need to calculate any allowance for doubtful accounts. You're going to need to calculate accruals. You know, do you have vacation accruals that aren't showing on the financials? So you'll need some help from your advisor, your MA advisor, or your CPA to calculate working capital and to calculate these accruals. There's some other things that catch you. It's called deferred revenue, which is a liability, counts against you. Sometimes that's not booked. So you're looking for unbooked or unrecorded items on the PL or balance sheet. Another one I see as common is prepaid items, deposits, billings in excess of revenue and revenue in excess of costs on for engineers is another thing that captures you. And it could be hundreds of thousands of dollars. So take a look at working capital, pin it down, figure out your formula. Number one, the seller wants it low, the buyer wants it high. That's a general rule. The definition of working capital is not the definition that's used. What's used is what you negotiate. So you're going to negotiate every part of that working capital. I recommend you take numbers from a balance sheet so those calculations are are there. So the letter of intent, the purpose is to arrive and have and coming together of expectations, the buyer's expectation and the seller's expectation. And so anything that could be a potential deal killer is the second item that you want in your letters of intent. You absolutely have to have if there's an issue for instance, we have a cabinet shop that we're selling and they've got a lot of work in progress, right? Accounting definition says that should be included in working capital. We're excluding it because they've got a lot of projects that are in process. Some of them are 99% done and they just have to bill and they haven't collected the check. We need to make sure those things are fairly allocated and handled in the LOI. That's a thing that you want in the letter of intent, how that's going to be handled. And anything that might be an issue, anything that might be a concern or it might be unique to this type of business absolutely has to be in the letter of intent. Number two thing. Okay. Calculation of cash flow and or EBITDA. So you're going to want to align your expectations of how they're calculated. Are they calculated on a cash basis, on an accrual basis, a modified accrual basis, a full gap basis? And is cash flow calculated as STE, seller's discretionary, or EBITDA? EBITDA stands for earnings before interest tax depreciation amortization. It's kind of spelled weird. E-B-I-T-D-A, and you wonder how to say it, but uh, it's important to know how that's calculated, how they're calculating compared to how you are. Again, it's going to kill your deal if you don't do this. 
you get close to closing and the seller saying it's one way, the buyer saying it's somewhere else, gone through due diligence, you spent twenty, thirty thousand dollars on your due diligence and, and getting through it, and then you guys are arguing about how to calculate STE or EBITDA. So you gotta make sure you're aligned with the buyer on that. Okay, number four, allocation of assets. So when you sell a company, you have to file a form called Form 8594, IRS Form 8594. Look it up. What that means is you have to agree how you're allocating the assets of the business. Both buyer and seller have to agree and align, and they each fill out that form. The IRS checks it and makes sure how that form is completed, make sure there's an agreement. So if the buyer's saying one thing, seller's saying something else, the numbers don't line up, you're going to trigger an audit. It's form 8594. Learn about it, know about it. Don't let it kill your deal because that asset allocation and uh, can oftentimes mean to a huge swing in your taxes, hundreds of thousands of dollars, sometimes millions of dollars swing in your taxes based on how you allocate the assets which are sold. In a stock sale, you don't have to worry about it. Section 338 H10 election sale, you do have to worry about it. So make sure that you allocate your assets and you agree to have your assets allocated right up front or the formula. Again, you don't have to pin down numbers if you just agree to the formula in your letter of intent. Next item, counting methods or financials. So oftentimes I see sellers that are cash basis or accrual basis, modified accrual basis with their financials meaning they're not capturing all of the accruals, um, but some of them they are AREP usually, but not the vacation accruals or anything like that. So make sure that you come to an alignment on your accounting methods and what is expected. I've been involved in, in transactions where you know we literally spent weeks and weeks converting cash basis financials to accrual basis financials, and it's a huge undertaking. So and we knew upfront it was not a big deal to my sellers because they knew that was part of the deal. They knew they were cashing a big check at the end, so it was worth it. But it required, you know, their accounting team, a bunch of accountants from the buy side, myself, and just a lot of hours to convert those over. It was a durable medical equipment company, and it was very complicated as it can be. So make sure you've aligned how it's going to be calculated, and if they expect you to convert from cash to accrual or cash to a full gap basis. Very important. Okay. An employment agreement. If there's going to be uh, an employment agreement for you as the owner, you want the terms of that or the basic terms. You don't need to, with this, like when you get engaged, you don't have to specify every single little thing, but uh, some of these details are worked out, but make sure that you at least know the basics of what that employment agreement is going to look like, what they're going to pay you, how they're going to pay you? Are you you're okay with the salary moving forward? Bonuses and also the expectation as far as number of hours per week. Does a buyer expect you to be there for forty and you think you're going to be there for ten? It's not going to work, and it kills your deal. So negotiate that up front, put it in your LOI, and then you don't have to worry about it later. The next thing is a consulting agreement. Sometimes they want you to act as a consultant after close and after the training period, and as a consultant, you need to be paid. And so you're going to want to negotiate the terms of that and put them in your LOI. Never assume just based on a conversation that it's going to happen. It has to be in writing where it doesn't exist. I'm going to say it again. It has to be in writing where it does not exist. And you need to specify the type of transaction it is. Is it a stock purchase? Is it an entity purchase, stock or entity? Or is it an asset or is it a hybrid? The Section 338 H10 hybrid. We're going to talk about that on another podcast. Basically, that lets you treat it for 
legal purposes as a purchase of the entity and for tax purpose as a purchase of the assets. And there is another one now where they're dropping companies into an LLC and then putting them into an S-corp. It's a little bit complicated, but I'm seeing more and more of those now and they're treated as asset sales. Okay. Hold back amounts. One kind of dirty little secret in every purchase agreement or most every purchase is a hold back, meaning you don't get all your cash up front. Generally, they're going to keep some of that cash. We're going to hold it back until we finalized all of the numbers. And it, you know you need to know what that expectation is. Are they going to hold back 50%? They're going to hold back 20%, 5%, but that should be in the letter of intent. How much is it going to be? What triggers it to be released and how well that works? Certain binding provisions in a letter of intent, binding provisions that we usually see are exclusivity, meaning just like putting a ring on the finger, you're exclusive. You're not out dating. You're staying with that one person. So usually the exclusivity period is 60 to 90 days through due diligence, meaning you're not negotiating with anyone else. And by signing your letter of intent, what you give up is the right to market and to negotiate with other buyers during that exclusivity period. The reason buyers want it in there is they don't want you to be uh, dating other people on the side while they're prepared for marriage, right? Plus, if someone else comes in and offers more money, the buyers have a lot of money. I've seen buyers spend a quarter million dollars plus in their due diligence, you know, and they bring teams of people in, a tremendous amount of effort and cash expenditures and time expended to work towards a closing. They don't want someone else coming in and stealing it from them. Okay, the binding provision exclusivity and non-disclosure, meaning that you don't disclose that it's, that it's being sold to anyone outside of your advisors, your advisory circle. You can say that it's under contract. And we can tell other buyers that it's under contract, but you don't go blabbing to your customers. You don't go blabbing to your employees unless the buyer agrees that you should speak to them beforehand. So other one is a need a non-solicitation clause in the NDA. So if you don't have a non-solicitation, I call it an end around clause in your NDA, you need to put it in your letter of intent. That means they are not to solicit or contact employees, vendors, customers, anyone like that. And and you have a period on it, you know, for say 12 to 18 months after the letter of intent is terminated, should it be terminated. You don't want them coming after your employees. You don't want them coming after your customers and your vendors going in and looking to the list. And I've seen a lot of ugly stuff over the years. I've seen the bad, but you want to make sure that that's in your NDA or in your letter of intent. So I'm going to repeat and go through it again. First one is you want to make sure your work capital targets there calculation of cash flow or EBITDA, allocation of the assets, form IRS form 8594, accounting methods and financials, agree to those. Make sure your employment agreement terms are pinned down, same with your um, consulting agreement. Access to employees, vendors, and customers. Is the buyer requiring access to them? When is it done and how does that work? So if they want access to a key employee, that is not done until the rest of the due diligence is done and you're 90% of the way there. There are certain things that you do in sequence as you're going through this. You you make sure that um, it's done at the appropriate time. And if they want to talk to a customer, which rarely happens, but sometimes it does, you make sure that you have agreed how that's going to work and what the timing of that is. You don't want to do that till the very, very end, till every other T is crossed and I is dotted there through financial due diligence, operational due diligence, and it's all done except for that lay singing, as we say sometimes. Anyway, um, consulting agreement, asset purchase, what type of 
transaction it is, what's the deal structure. You'd know about holdback amounts, binding provisions, and a non-solicitation clause in your NDA. These are the main points of a letter of intent or indication of interest to make sure that you put them in every single one and you won't kill your deal. It won't murder your transaction. This is Rick J. Krebs thanking you again for joining our show today. All things M&A, selling a business. Bye. Thank you for attending our podcast. We invite you to join us for future episodes of M&A, Murders and Accusations, the good, the bad, and the ugly of selling your business. You can also visit us at www.bsalesgroup.com or email Rick directly at rick at bsalesgroup.com.